Happy Reformation Day. Every day is Reformation Day. Every Lord's Day is Reformation Lord's Day. We're continuing our message, the five solas of the Reformation. Last week we celebrated Reformation Sunday, the day after October 31st. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the chapel in Wittenberg. That was the formal beginning of the Reformation or the declaration of war. There are 1.3 billion Roman Catholics that yet need to be saved. In review, the first of the five solos of the Reformation, the first of the five pillars of the Reformation is Scripture alone or sola scriptura. It is the formal principle of the Reformation. It's the foundation of the historic Reformation and the essential key to any present or future Reformation. The other Reformation truths all flow from this undiluted, uncorrupted source of sola scriptura. The truth being that God's Word is sufficient. That God's Word is inspired, it is inerrant, it is preserved, and it is authoritative. That all true doctrine comes from God's Word. All right theology comes from God's Word. The gospel comes from God's Word. The revelation of God comes from God's Word. It is our authority. The church is not the authority. There is no council that is the authority. There is no head of the church called the Pope who is the authority. The Scripture, inspired by the Spirit of God, Theonoustos, God-breathed, preserved by the Spirit of God, inerrant, is authoritative over the church and over all of mankind. The Scripture is truth. In fact, without the God of Scripture and The truth he has revealed in Scripture, we have no path to truth. Scripture alone is the foundation of the Reformation. And we have a visible representation of that before us right here, in that the Word of God is set in the center of the church on a pulpit, rather than there being an altar in the center of the church, upon which Christ is re-crucified in a non-bloody manner, by a so-called priest every day. And so the Word of God is at the center of Christ's church, for in it we have the revelation of the one true God. The second of the five solas of the Reformation is soligatia, soligatia, or grace alone. Grace alone, as we find summarized in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace You have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. By grace, that is the power. By grace, sovereign grace, the work of God to redeem sinners, the work of God to regenerate dead sinners and bring them to life, that they might be gifted faith and repentance. By grace, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. The faith is a gift from God. Not of works. Faith is not the work you provide. It's a gift of God. 
Not of works, not of sacraments, not of candle lightings, not of prayers, not of church attendance, not of abortion ministry, which many Roman Catholics engage in as an act of justification, self-justification, a system of works righteousness from the sacraments out to even their sacrificial acts of service in the community. All contrary to salvation by grace alone, the only salvation there is, as the Word of God testifies. Galatians 5.4, you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Estranged from Christ, cut off. You who attempt to be justified by law, any law, God's law in the Holy Scriptures, or the Pope's law, or the priest's law, or the Mormon church's law, or the Jehovah's Witnesses' law, or the Muslims' law. You have become estranged from Christ, cut off. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. It's all of grace or none of grace. Grace alone. Thirdly, faith alone. Faith alone. Romans 1.17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. In it. What? In the gospel. In the gospel. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Romans 1.17, For in it... The gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. You are justified, just as if you had never sinned. You are declared just through faith in Jesus Christ. Your sin imputed to Him, He pays the debt in full. His righteousness imputed to you, you stand before God declared righteous. Through faith alone. And this, Romans 1.17, I remind you, is the text that Martin Luther discovered after his fellow priests told him, Martin, go study the Word of God. Perhaps in it you will find peace. They were tired of his perpetual confessions. They were tired of his bemoaning of his sin. And they sent him to study the Word of God. And in the Word of God, he, by the grace of God, found the true gospel, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Romans 1.17 was the pivotal verse. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as is written, the just shall live by faith. That's our boast. That's our gospel. That's the uniqueness of Christianity. That's the glory of Christianity over and above all of the systems of works righteousness that man has created, chief amongst them, that system known as Roman Catholicism. The gospel is about the righteousness of God being revealed, not the righteousness of the Pope or the righteousness of the priest or the righteousness of Catholics obeying the Pope and the priest, carrying out the edicts thereof day by day in their sacramental system of righteousness. No. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. How tragic. How terrible to abandon the righteousness of God and prefer 
the righteousness of men, the righteousness of a system that men create, which is no righteousness at all. For all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And so faith alone is the third and pivotal, powerful truth of the five solas of the Reformation. Galatians 3.11 says, But that no one is justified by the law on the side of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. No one is justified by law in the sight of God is evident. It's clear. For the just shall live by faith. Hear me. If you can't be made righteous through obeying God's actual law, that which is contained in Holy Scripture, you most certainly will not be made righteous by obeying the laws that men create outside of Scripture that God never dreamed of. The just shall live by faith. It's interesting that that's in Galatians 3.11, that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith, even as that's in Romans 1.17. Because Galatians is a book. Galatians was pivotal in Martin Luther's life, heart, and transformation from a Romanist to a Christian. Galatians set him free. And Galatians, dear saints, will still, by the grace of God, set free those bound up in dead systems of works righteousness. For Galatians says things like this. Galatians 5, 4. Excuse me. Like this. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. You've not just fallen from grace, you've fallen from faith. You've denied faith. It's either law or faith. You cannot mix the two. The just shall live by faith, not law. The just shall live by faith, not law. What is the role of law? What is the role of Morality, what is the role of obedience? It is an expression of our faith. It's the result of our saving faith. It's the evidence that God's sovereign grace has come upon us with the gift of saving faith that we now walk in the light of the Word, obeying the commands of God. But obedience to the commands of God does not save us. It is evidence that we have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And mind you, Roman Catholics have faith. Mormons have faith. Jehovah's Witnesses have faith. It is faith alone that you must have to be saved. They have faith plus works. And that's the distinction that Galatians 5, 4 makes, is that you are estranged from Christ, you who mix law with grace. You who mix law with faith. And that's the clear declaration of Romans 1, 17 and Galatians 3, 11. The just shall live by faith. In context, alone. Alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, once again, For by grace you have been saved through faith. If the sovereign grace has come upon you, the sovereign grace of God has come upon you, if the saving grace of God has come upon you, it comes with the gift of faith, through faith. 
and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now consider, consider the baptism of Rome, which is no baptism at all, because baptismo, the Greek means immerse. The baptism of Rome is a sprinkling from the hand of a priest upon a baby. The baby has no faith. No faith. The baby has no understanding of what's taking place at all unless he or she understands that they're getting wet and begins to cry. Yet the Word of God says that Joshua lived by faith. The Word of God says, by grace you have been saved through faith. And yet the priest declares the baby born again, regenerated. And part of the universal church of Jesus Christ The priest declares the baby's original sin to be washed away through the sprinkling of water from the priest's hand. A direct defiance and repudiation of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Philippians chapter 3 verse 8 says, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Now just to be clear, Philippians 3, 8, 9 is a faith alone statement when he puts the two head to head and says that he considers all his works as rubbish. And he says that his righteousness is in Christ through faith alone and not from the law. Not from the law. He is not merely ascribing to a salvation through faith, or celebrating salvation through faith, but he is distinguishing salvation that is by faith alone from a supposed salvation that is a mixture or an amalgamation of faith and works. Luther says this about Roman Catholicism's system of works righteousness. Every teacher of works righteousness is a troublemaker. Has it never occurred to you that the Pope, cardinals, bishops, monks, and that the whole synagogue of Satan are troublemakers? The truth is, they are worse than false apostles. The false apostles taught that in addition to to faith in Christ, the works of the law of God were necessary unto salvation. But the papists omit faith altogether and teach self-devised traditions and works that are not commanded of God. Indeed, are contrary to the word of God. And for these traditions, they demand preferred attention and obedience. And so, in time and in practice, the system of Rome is less and less about faith and more about the system more about the standings and the kneelings, the bowings and the candle lightings, the wafer on the tongue, than it is about faith in Jesus Christ alone. So again, Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone. 
sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide. And fourth, Christ alone, Christ alone. No antichrist pope, no antichrist bishop, no antichrist priest, no antichrist church, no antichrist sacrament saves. No antichrist wafer, no works which we do or any other sinful human being does, no proclamation that we make or any other sinful human being makes. Christ alone, dear saints, is the Savior. Let us here look at Rome's labor to introduce in to the hearts of men something other than Christ. Rome repudiates and rejects Christ alone even more so than it does faith alone or grace alone. At every turn, they're adding something to Christ. At every turn, there's another thing to put your faith in other than Jesus Christ. There's another relic. There's another bit of the cross. There's another arm bone of some dead saint to put your faith in other than Christ. But the Word of God is explicit. The salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Roman Catholicism's idolatry in the Mass, of course, comes first. The Catechism of the Catholic Church gives us a false Christ in the wafer and the cup of the church. Is Christ literally in that wafer? Is that wafer worthy of worship? Is Christ literally in that cup? Is that cup of wine worthy of worship? Does that wafer, does that cup have the power of God to save, to redeem, to justify? The answer is no. Nevertheless, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1375, says it is by conversion of the bread and wine into Christ's body and blood that Christ becomes present in this sacrament. That is known as transubstantiation. The priest prays over the elements and Christ is literally present in the sacrament. Paragraph 1377 says the Eucharist presence of Christ begins at the moment of the consecration and endures as long as the Eucharist species subsist. Paragraph 1378, worship of the Eucharist. They worship the bread and the cup. I shared how recently we were driving through downtown Portland and there was a priest walking through downtown Portland with a giant wafer on a pole, worshiping the wafer and the faithful Roman Catholic men and women walking through Portland with him, worshiping that wafer. And I did a bit of further research and found, indeed, they were exercising Portland. They were casting demons out of Portland. They were casting political turmoil and strife out of Portland with their Antichrist wafer, with their false Christ, literally believing that they could march Jesus through Portland on a stick, worshiping him, and that would drive away the demons of political division and strife. That's the Church of Rome. Paragraph 1183 says the tabernacle is to be situated in church in a most worthy place with the greatest of honor. The dignity, placing, and security of the Eucharist tabernacle should foster adoration before the Lord really present in the blessed sacrament of the altar. And so in the center of the Roman Catholic Church, they have this tabernacle, this box up front, and they place the bread in the box. 
And when the faithful Roman Catholic enters into the Roman Catholic Church, they genuflect, they bow, they worship Jesus in the box. Jesus contained in that wafer. That Antichrist wafer. That false Christ. It's blasphemy, dear saints. And the Word of God is clear. Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Those who bow before the wafer hate the Lord Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's the Word of God. And thus, if we love our Roman Catholic friends, we've got to call them to repent of their wafer, to repent of their cup, to repent of their Eucharist, to repent of their Mass, to repent of their false priest who claims to call Christ out of heaven into that wafer and cup. And if they haven't repented of that, then they have not believed the gospel. And they are not saved. And if they have repented of that, they'll never step foot in a Roman Catholic Antichrist church again. Because they understand what it is. It's Antichrist. It's anti-gospel. It's an expression of hatred to Christ. And now they love Christ. The one mediator between God and men, seated at the right hand of the Father. And they love His gospel. His finished work. And they would never again partake in that false church, that Antichrist church, in their Antichrist wafer and cup. Mark 13, 21, the Lord Jesus speaking says, If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ. Look, here he is there. Do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Jesus warned us that these men would come and say, He's over here. Here is the Christ. Look here. And He said, don't believe it. Many false Christs will come. Mark 13, 26, it says, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. When will you see the Son of Man? Not at Mass. Not on that wafer or in that wafer that's going to be placed on your tongue, you'll see Jesus Christ when He comes in the clouds. You won't see Him in the hand of the priest. You won't see Him on that stick being marched through Portland. You won't see Him in the tabernacle at the front of the Roman Catholic Church. You'll see Him again when He comes in the clouds or when you die and go to Him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In Acts chapter 1, they were standing steadfastly looking toward heaven as Jesus went up. And behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He will come in like manner. He'll not come at the bidding of a false priest to enter into that wafer and cup to be eaten and drank for justification. Matthew 2531, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory and all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from, the, from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, He will sit on the throne of His glory. 
He'll not sit on top of a stick. He'll not sit in a box in the church of Rome. The heart of Rome is the mass. The heart of Rome is the Eucharist. The heart of Rome is the wafer and the cup. The heart of Rome is idolatry, a false Christ, antichrist, in place of the true Christ. We need Christ alone. Perhaps second to that great heresy of the mass, that great heresy of the wafer, is the great heresy of Mary. The idolatry of Mary. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says this regarding Mary's so-called saving office. Even that, that's a quote, saving office. Paragraph 969 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church states, quote, Taken up to heaven, she did not lay aside this saving office, but by her manifold intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. Therefore, the Blessed Virgin is invoked in the church under the titles Advocate, Helper, Benefactress, and Mediatrix. That is profoundly Antichrist. And so we must say to our Roman Catholic friends that we love, have you repented of your worship of Mary? Oh, but I don't worship Mary. Oh, but you do if you believe the Catechism of Rome. If you consider her to be your helper, who is the helper, saints? the Holy Spirit of God. If you consider her to be your benefactress and mediatrix, who would that describe? The Lord Jesus. Then indeed, you've committed idolatry with Mary. If you pray to Mary, you're committing idolatry with Mary because you're ascribing to Mary powers that only God has. Mary is not the mediator. Mary does not receive prayer. Jesus does. Jesus was asked how we should pray. You pray to the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. Our Father who art in heaven. You do not pray to Mary or any other so-called saint. That is idolatry. That is antichrist. That is not Christ alone. 1 John 2.1 says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And yet, the Catechism of Rome says Mary is the advocate, or an advocate. In 1 Timothy 2.5, it says, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And yet, they call her the co-mediatrix, or just the mediatrix. In John 14.16 It says, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth. The spirit is the helper and yet Mary is called the helper. She is given the titles and the power of God the Son and God the Holy Spirit by the heretical church of Rome. The church of Rome and Paragraph 495 of its catechism says, Mary is truly mother of God. Saints, that's heresy. That's heresy to say she is the mother of God. They claim she is sinless in paragraph 493. It says, she is free from any stain of sin as though fashioned by the Holy Spirit and formed as a new creature. She is sinless. 
The only sinless one is Jesus. The Bible clearly states that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 The Bible clearly calls Jesus Mary's Savior. Luke 1.47 And the Bible clearly says in 1 John 1.8 If any man says he has no sin, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. And yet the church of Rome says Mary has no sin. They go further. Paragraph 974 of their catechism claims that she was taken up to heaven, body and soul, where she already shares in the glory of her son's resurrection, anticipating the resurrection of all members of his body in Christ. So she was assumed, she was caught up to heaven, body and soul. She ascended. They call her the Queen of Heaven. If you go to the grotto in downtown Portland and you look at the back of the chapel wall there, you see the Father and the Son lowering a crown on Mary's head as the Queen of Heaven. In Catechism, Paragraph 966, it says, Finally, the Immaculate Virgin, preserved free from all stain of original sin, when the course of her earthly life was finished, was taken up body and soul into heavenly glory and exalted by the Lord as queen over all things so that she might be the more fully conformed to her Son, the Lord of Lords and the conqueror of sin and death. Queen of heaven. This heresy is so prevalent that the illiterate Muhammad mistook Mary for the third person of the Trinity, or perhaps the second person, father, mother, and son. And that error, Muhammad's error, Rome's heresy, made it into the Quran. The Quran shows that it's no book of God, has no divine inspiration, but it's a book of lies and errors, a book of men, in that it declares the Trinity to be Father, Mother, and Son. Why? Because Muhammad ran into Roman Catholics, and that's what he saw. That's what he comprehended by their elevation of Mary to Queen of Heaven. The Catholic Catechism in paragraph 499 declares her a perpetual virgin, which is just nonsense. It's just nonsense, completely contrary to Scripture, and that Matthew 12, 46 and other texts make clear that the Lord Jesus had both brothers and sisters, born of Joseph and Mary. But they insist on elevating her at every turn. Consider a prayer of the rosary. I'll read it. We do not ascribe to it. It is abomination. It is heresy. And I quote, Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To Thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. To Thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this veil of tears. Turn then, most gracious advocate, Thine eyes of mercy toward us. And after this, our exile, show unto us the blessed fruit of Thy womb, Jesus O Clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary, pray for us, O Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ 
Amen. That is what is prayed when our Catholic friends hold those rosaries outside of the abortion clinic or in the comfort of their own home or when they go and worship the wafer in the box, the Antichrist in the box, they then pray this to Mary. Hail, Holy Queen. Heresy upon heresy upon heresy. All the repudiation and rejection of Christ and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But wait, there's more. Not only do they worship Mary, not only do they worship the wafer and the cup, then there's Roman Catholicism's ecumenical heresy. You don't need Christ. You don't need Mary. You don't need the wafer. You don't even need the church or its priest or its pope. The ecumenical heresy of Rome denies salvation through Christ alone. What does the Catholic Church teach about non-believers? About so-called good people going to heaven without Christ or the church? Paragraph 847 of the Catechism says, Outside the Roman Catholic Church, there is no salvation. But wait. And yet, in direct contradiction, it goes on to say, quote, This affirmation is not aimed at those who, through no fault of their own, do not know Christ and His church. Those who, through no fault of their own, do not know the gospel of Christ or His church, but who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart and moved by grace, try in their actions to do His will as they know it through the dictates of their conscience, those too may achieve eternal salvation. That is a complete rejection of the rest of their catechism that nullifies everything else their catechism says. You can be saved through complete ignorance. You can be saved with no knowledge of the God of the Bible or Jesus Christ or the Church of Rome or its sacraments just saved by being a basically good person. The only problem with that, of course, is the Word of God, Sola Scriptura, is quite clear that no one is good, no, not one. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That all of our righteousnesses, good people, right? All of our righteousnesses, they're filthy rags. That our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The Word of God is clear. There is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. There's one name under heaven given among men, but you must be saved. Jesus alone is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. Or John 3 18, he who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Or Romans 1, 18 and following, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God has been revealed to them through the creation. And then chapter 2, through their conscience. And they suppress the truth that has been revealed to them of the true God in unrighteousness. Therefore, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against them because they actively suppress the truth, the knowledge of God that they have through creation and conscience. And so the Catechism in paragraph 847 says that they who do not know Christ and His church through no fault of their own 
who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart, may achieve eternal salvation. But it goes further. Paragraph 841 says the church's relationship with Muslims, quote, the plan of salvation also includes those who acknowledge the Creator in the first place amongst whom are the Muslims. These who profess to hold the faith of Abraham, and together with us they adore the one merciful God, mankind's judge, on the last day. Muslims do not have the faith of Abraham. They do not worship the God of Abraham. They worship an idol. But that doesn't matter to the church of Rome that is full of idols. They're happy to declare Muslims who worship Allah, the false god, the idol of Islam, to be saved, to be under the grace of God. Another path to heaven, Islam. So you can either go to heaven through the church of Rome and its sacraments, chief of which is the Antichrist wafer, or you can go to heaven as an ignorant unbeliever, or you can go to heaven as a Muslim. So pretty much the only people who don't go to heaven are Bible-believing Christians, are Christians who reject the Antichrist doctrines of Rome, who reject the Antichrist wafer of Rome. And they make quite explicit and clear that all those who reject their wafer, who reject their mass and the transubstantiated Christ that's at the heart of it, all those are under the anathema. They shall be damned. So the teachings of Rome expressly damn Bible-believing Christians who say salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the genuine Jesus Christ alone, and no wafer, no Mary, no good works, no Muslim idolatry. Those people are under the anathema. Those Bible-believing Christians. Isn't it interesting how those on the broad road of destruction unite together, saying, we're on the genuine road to heaven. And they unite against us, saying, you over there on the narrow road, you're on the only true road to hell. You who are on that narrow path of life, calling us to join you by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone on the way to heaven, you are under the anathema. That's no accident, saints. The Bible calls all of the world's religions, all the world's systems of works righteousness, doctrines of demons. There is one mind at the helm of all of them, and that is Satan himself. And so they find union together against our Christ, the only Savior. May God grant us clarity and strength to preach Christ as Colossians 1.28 says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to His working, which works in me mightily. Him we preach. We preach Christ. And Christ alone. For the glory of God. As Romans 5 Verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, by the way, that's past tense, in Rome's system of works righteousness, it's never having been justified by faith. It's always being justified, being justified, ongoing, day by day, justification doled out literally bite by bite as you cannibalistically eat Jesus for righteousness. 
Biblically speaking, having been, past tense, justified by faith, we have now peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ alone, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It's all to the glory of God because it's all of God. It's all of God. It's of God's Word, sola scriptura. It's of God's grace, sola gratia. It's of God's faith, the faith God has gifted us, not of yourselves. Ephesians 2.8, sola fide. All to the glory of God. God's glory alone. God's glory alone. To God be the glory. Sola de gloria. The fifth principle, the fifth sola of the Reformation, the fifth pillar of the Reformation, sola de gloria, for God's glory alone. Francis Jane Crosby's hymns have historically been among the most popular songs sung by Methodists. Crosby, who became blind as an infant, was a lifelong Methodist. She began composing hymns at age six, became a student at the New York Institute of the Blind at 15 and joined the faculty of the Institute at 22. Her hymn texts were staples for the music of the most prominent gospel songwriters of her day. She wrote this, To God be the glory, great things He hath done. Sound familiar? So loved He the world that He gave us His Son, who yielded His life an atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear His voice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give Him the glory. Great things He hath done. Oh, perfect redemption, the purchase of blood to every believer, the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Great things He hath taught us. Great things He hath done, and great are rejoicing through Jesus the Son. But purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our rapture, when Jesus we see. To God be the glory. The most famous of the Westminster Shorter Catechism's questions is the first question. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is, Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What is the chief end of man? Why do we exist? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Romans 8, 29 says, For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. Whom He justified, these He also glorified. Who is moving there? God did it all. God did it all. To God be the glory. The golden chain of salvation contained in Romans 8, 29 and 30 glorifies God alone. Romans eleven thirty three through 36 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become His counselor? Or who has first given to Him? And it shall be repaid Him. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. 
to God be the glory. Great things he hath done. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He has made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us. In all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both of which are in heaven and which are on earth in Him. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him also, in Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And all of God's saints said, Amen. The final words of Jude are found in verse 25. We'll be studying them this afternoon. May they ever be the cry of our hearts. It says, To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Matthew 6, 9-13 through 13 records the prayer that the Lord Jesus taught us, which is a sola de gloria prayer. Every prayer is to end with sola de gloria. The Lord Jesus said this, In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It begins with sola de gloria. Verse 10, And your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That's our prayer. That's our focus. That's our aim. That's why we exist. That's why everything exists. For the glory of God forever. Sola de Gloria. One final point. There are the five solas, the Reformation, and then there's one Semper. Semper Reformanda. Always reforming. Always reforming. There's a gospel war on saints. There's a truth war raging. There's a war being fought for eternal souls and the glory of our King. Every generation of Christians must declare, define, and defend the gospel at all costs. The devil is actively and relentlessly waging war against the gospel. He assaults sola scriptura by attacking the inspiration, inerrancy, preservation, sufficiency, authority, 
perspicuity, and power of Scripture. The devil relentlessly assaults sola gratia and sola fide with dead systems of religious works righteousness that the Bible calls doctrines of demons. The devil assaults solus Christus by attacking Christ's deity, by attacking Christ's humanity, and by attacking Christ's finished work on the cross. The devil assaults sola deo gloria by sowing doctrinal seeds of humanism into Christ's church, elevating man out of his depraved state with Pelagian, semi-Pelagian, and Arminian doctrine. The devil assaults the very character and nature of God by leading rebel men to blaspheme the love of God because they hate the sovereignty of God. The devil is now going to step further in his assault on God's glory and his bold attempt to make the word of God's condemnation of LGBT homosexual sin to be bigotry and thus the God of the word a hateful bigot himself. We have a very real enemy. He's relentless in his war against our God, his gospel, and his broader truth. Isn't it interesting that as our world system further embraces the judgment declared in Romans 1.18 and following, embracing all forms of sexual immorality, all forms of lust, men laying with men as with women, women laying with women, haters of God, not only doing these things, but applauding and approving of those who do them. As our culture goes further in that direction, we find the church of Rome is joining them. And not just the church of Rome, we find the evangelical church joining them and declaring homosexuals to be Catholics too, homosexuals to be Christians too, on the way to heaven. May God grant us strength to be the Lord's reformers in every age. We have false pastors declaring a false gospel, declaring people on the broad road of destruction, whether they be Roman Catholic idolaters or whether they be fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals, lesbians, unrepentant of idolatry or unrepentant of sexual immorality, and they're ready to declare them all as brothers and sisters in Christ, semper reformandus saints, always reforming. The devil's always assaulting the faith. The devil is always assaulting salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, as the scriptures alone record. And we are called to stand firm against the wiles of the devil who roams to and fro seeking to devour We're called to stay on that narrow path of life and to call to those who are erring toward or actually on the broad path of destruction to come back, to repent, to flee from the wrath to come, to flee to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Stonewall Jackson rightly said of warfare and soldiering, war means fighting. The business of the soldier is to fight. Armies are not called out to dig trenches, to throw up breastworks, to live in camps, but to find the enemy and strike him, to invade his country and to do him all possible damage in the shortest possible time. This will involve great destruction of life and property while it lasts, but such a war will of necessity be of brief continuance. And so would be an economy of life and property in the end. 
To move swiftly, strike vigorously, and secure all fruits of victory is the secret of successful war. But so much of the church today is called off the war. We think we're in peacetime. But the Lord has called us to war. He has enlisted us as soldiers, the Word of God outright says. He has given us armor and a sword, the Word of God clearly says. Oh, saints, we need to war on for Christ, for His glory, and to rescue those taken captive by the enemy, being led down that broad road to their destruction. Roman Catholics are not our enemy. They are our friends. We want them to be rescued. Homosexuals are not our enemy. They are our neighbors that we love. We want them to be rescued. The devil who is deceiving them is the enemy. The doctrines, the teachings, that is the enemy. They may see us as their enemy, but we call them friend. If the Lord Jesus can call Judas friend, surely we can call them friend and plead for their souls. But we are no friend of their doctrine. We are no friend of their master, the evil one. We are no friend of the doctrines of demons. To that we are a sworn enemy. But let us fight a good fight out of love for Christ our King, out of love for those who are perishing under the ruler of this world. He was given a short rule, the evil one, Satan. And let us not see those who are perishing as our enemies, but those who must be rescued. Through clarity, through strength, through the power of God's word, as faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths, Lord, and those who have fought, those who have suffered, and those who have died, defending, defining, and declaring them. May we be found faithful in our generation, Lord, fighting a good fight for your glory and for the redemption of sinners. We pray it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.